Hi, I'm Matt Taibbi, and you are? Katie Halper. And welcome to Useful Idiots. It's our new podcast. We were too lazy to write an intro to the show, so it's a podcast. We're going to be podcast, talking yeah. about politics, culture, the media, all, all kinds true. of stuff, and yep. you'll figure it out. And uh, our first guest is none other than Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard. That's right. She's going to be coming up later. Yeah. All right, so we're probably going to start each podcast by doing a quick review of the news of the week. And when I was a kid, a friend of mine in the business, a TV producer who worked with my dad, told me that there were really only four stories in the news business. There's uh, Democrats suck, Republicans suck, isn't that weird, and isn't that horrible. Those are the basic four food groups of news. So I figured we could just cut straight to those, uh, do one yeah. of each, and then just sort of that, that'll set you up for where you are in the news this week. So Democrats suck, always a rich topic. What do we have this week? Well, uh, it's a weekday, so of course we have uh, Democrats attacking Susan Sarandon right. as being somehow responsible for Donald Trump. And so this week what happened was apparently she was at a fundraiser can for... We, can we just back up? Yeah. How did Susan Sarandon become the most important person on the planet? Yeah, like, she's... Right. She's so just she, sort of puttering along as just a really good actress until like 2015... Yeah, and then and what happened is she became magical. Awesome yeah, powers. Yeah, awesome right? powers. Yeah. Because Thelma and Louise is huge in uh, the Rust Belt. And uh, uh, okay. I think that's why. Or maybe The Hunger, that, that French uh, film, vampire film with the lesbian scene with Catherine Deneuve. It's another one that's huge I there. I did not see that one. Um, so it's very productive, and it really is a great getting out the vote uh, effort where people remind everyone that Susan Sarandon is apparently responsible for for Donald Trump and she at a fundraiser the other day said that Bernie Sanders is is not someone who used to be a Republican which um, triggered so a lot imme- of immediately, people. Immediately, that's interpreted as, as, a, as a swipe at Elizabeth Warren. Which it probably was. Yeah, sure. Yeah, but you know so. what? Like, I don't actually think that that's the greatest argument against people who aren't Sanders. In case no one can tell, I, I like Sanders. He's my guy. But I do think that, just like I didn't find the Hillary Clinton is a Goldwater girl argument very effective, because I think it's good when people evolve. But it's also a totally fair thing to say. You're basically I mean, saying you're, they're he's running consistent. for president. So yeah. what are they supposed to do? Yeah, like you're not, saying... not go after each other. Right. But but of course, so this, so this is already just not normal campaigning, because what you're what you're doing is you're undermining the future nominee that you know. Right. You're not allowed to basically say anything critical about anyone else. Or you're helping Trump, especially not... Elizabeth Warren. Right. Yes. And I, I, I should probably—I I like Elizabeth yeah. Warren, but you know, as a friend of mine said uh, a couple of weeks ago, Elizabeth Warren is identity politics for journalists because it's funny. She's yeah, a, that's she's really a great smart point. Yeah, Massachusetts. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, and we all identify with her, right? right. Because she's like one of us, basically. Right. What and is the fair argument you're allowed to make about her, or you're just not allowed to? I don't know. The argument. Six months ago was that she had already fatally the questions had arisen about her ability to compete in the in the right. uh, that that was the that was the way the journalists were taking shots at her. Now all of a sudden she's got the whole machinery of everything behind her, which right. is interesting. I didn't see that coming, but you're not allowed to talk about her. So Susan Sarandon may, takes a you know an oblique shot at Elizabeth Warren in right. a Bernie Sanders event where you know you'd figure. That's where you would hear right, one. Yeah. So near attendance says um, that's very disappointing. Very disappointing. But I actually I think that one of my favorite responses is from Adam Parchamenko. Parchamenko. Yeah. Um, so these are people, by the way, who literally are responsible in large part because they work for Hillary Clinton for the Hillary Clinton loss, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure why that they're why they're such good insights. 
but uh, have such good insights on this. But so Adam said, fuck Susan Sarandon. Seriously, do they wake her out of her cryogenic chamber whenever a woman starts doing well in the polls? <laughs> so what I love about this is it's so meta. I love when people who have, are just terrible people with terrible politics play woke. Right. So he's actually like smearing Susan Sarandon as old. Right. Right. And that's ageist and that's sexist because she's a woman and an actress. And I don't need to explain this to anyone who actually pretends to care about this stuff. Um, but he uses that to say, do they wake her out of her cryogenic chamber whenever a woman starts doing well in the polls? So the argument is that Susan Sarandon is motivated by, she's a useful idiot, if you will. Right. She's motivated by sexism or self-loathing, not by her politics or her life of activism, um, which has included getting arrested and going to jail for various causes. Right. Um, she, she came out of her cryogenic chamber uh, where where she was a, an, an aging, declining, yeah, exactly. w- rotting rotting woman right. to be, because she was upset that Elizabeth Warren was doing well in the polls. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's great. So that's so Democrats. You, suck. That's yeah. just cla- it's just classic. It's just you're, you're, there's going to be more of that uh, throughout the campaign. Uh, so the Republican suck one was good, though. We had Steve King this week. I have a theory that there, because there's so few places to go from Trump, that there's really only a couple of people who are plausible future presidential mm. candidates for Republicans. And I, I think it's pretty much limited to Steve King and Kurt Schilling, Ooh. right? Wow. Uh, so, but Steve King was great this week. Do you, have, do you have this clip? House Republican leaders are condemning comments again from one of their own this morning. Iowa Congressman Steve King. Speaking before a conservative group in his state yesterday, he defended his call for a ban on all abortions. He asked how many humans would be on Earth today if we were not for those conceived through rape and incest. What if we went back through all the family trees and just pulled those people out that were products of rape and incest? Would there be any population of the world left if we did that? Wow. How much of the population does he think is the product of rape and incest? I mean, I think he's imagining like a, a left behind scenario. Where right. You could just see the bodies vanishing, right. Right? right? Like, you know, you were born from it. We should do like some kind of competition where we tally up each week how many people have attacked Susan Sarandon and how many times Steve King has said something really inappropriate. Oh, that would I feel be a like, good, like, sort of, like, how many times Susan Sarandon got in the news in a negative way yeah. versus how many times Steve King said something something dumb. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. yeah. So it's 1-1 one, one now. Yeah, exactly. Right? Okay. It's 1-1, one, one, yeah. We check, we check in that later. Okay, so yeah. we should go to Isn't That Horrible? So Isn't That Horrible is, like, the most important component of all news broadcasts because basically the whole idea is you want to scare the crap out of audiences. Like, right now there's a there's an Ebola uh, outbreak. We got dengue fever. Mm. There's a new new HIV outbreak in the South. There's a uh, an epidemic of nurse suicides. Oh, um, which really doesn't scan well with the other ones. Right. There's an outbreak of rat lungworm. That's when uh, people eat tiny snails that are excreted by, uh, by rats. Uh, so we've had a bunch of those cases, like little, the snails end up eating your lungs uh, while, while you're and alive. And they die? Yeah, so that's, that's good. But I thought the, this week's uh, Isn't That Honorable, the really good one, was expert. Fatty liver disease is the next healthcare epidemic. So basically it says that 800,000 people are going to end up uh, with liver-related deaths uh, between 2015 and 2030, and um, it's a new kind of uh, uh, fatty liver disease that causes chronic inflammation. But the really interesting part about this is that there's no symptoms, so you can't really tell if you're sick or not. So you probably have fatty liver disease. And I don't even know it. If only those could be the people who are the products of rape and incest. That would be a real nice coming full circle <laughs> thing. Coming full yeah. circle. 
right? The fatty liver disease people. Yeah. And then, I don't know, isn't that weird? When I look for weird news, I always go for the British newspapers. I was ju- I'm not kidding. I was just going to say that. Really? Yeah. The British really are really weird. good at this stuff. Yeah. I mean, they, they've been around forever and they you know what they dark, know. such dark, sordid senses of humor, yeah. The one that was really good this week was woman proudly boils dirty knickers in hotel kettle to clean them and people are sickened. <laughs> wow, really? Yeah, I mean, that's so. a little disappointing for, for, for Brits and like... Uh, yeah, so apparently... I mean, it's weird, I guess, but yeah, I thought it was going to be more scandalous. Well, so what's interesting about this is that, that apparently there was a whole discussion in British media about whether or not you should wash your underwear in kettles. Okay, um, that is right. The kettle part is a little weird. Yeah, I mean, I, well, I, I guess there isn't any other place to do it in a hotel. I don't know. What about a sink? You, well, you want to you wanna boil it. Boil. Okay, you got to boil the underwear. Yeah, you guys. <laughs> okay, this sounds like a recipe. Yeah, uh, exactly, exactly. To be eaten with the snails or whatever. Who are we to judge her after we listed all the, these horrible health issues? You right. should err on the side of safety and... Um, and uh, boiling is is close to godliness or cleanliness, right? Right, right. So okay, so that's so we got Susan Sarandon is uh, coming out of her cryogenic chamber. Yeah. Um, Slash, I'm woke. Right. People, that. there would be less people on Earth if it wasn't for rape and incest. Um, you probably have fatty liver disease, and uh, you shouldn't uh, boil your underwear right. in a kettle. <laughs> so that's the news of the week, um, and uh, we'll go on to the show from here. Yeah. So we're going to play a little bit of a game okay. where I'm going to read you different Democratic candidates' slogans. And i got to guess which you one. you got to guess who they are, oh, yeah. <laughs> but I want right. to just give this some context, because, of course, the best sloganeer, the best everything is... Donald Trump. He's the standard by which everyone else should be judged. Now, did you know, I missed this, in June, he, he came out with a, a new logo? New slogan, sorry, he came out yeah, with a new slogan. what is it again? It's, it's, uh, it's Keep America Great Again, right? Well, yeah, let's, I'm going to play this. Can it, I just interject, though, yeah, that yeah. The, the unofficial slogans of Trump are just unbelievable. They're amazing. Okay, you know, Fuck yeah. your feelings. Like, that's, yeah. that's, that's a great when one. When did that happen? How did um, that come up? I started up? seeing that one about two or three months ago. So maybe maybe it's from before, but... Right, uh, but it's fan... Is that fan gen- user-generated, or...? Yeah, no, it's okay. like a t-shirt. You Got know, it, okay, yeah. That and we, sticker. Uh, okay, so here is this thing. Uh, this was in June. This is Donald Trump making an announcement. So now I'm saying, what do we use as our theme, as our statement? So I'm going to ask you to vote on it. I'm going to go make America great again, then keep America great. Let me just hear by your cheers what you like. So, in all fairness, make America great the greatest of all time. I really believe that. The greatest of all time. How do you give up the greatest of all time with a new theme? Because you know what's going to happen? If I do it with a new theme, I give up the greatest of all time. And if I lose, people are going to say, what a mistake that was. But we're not going to lose, so it's not going to matter. We're not going to lose. I love, first of all, that he makes that assessment of, like, strategy. Right. Like, yeah. if I lose, they're going to say it was all about the slogan. Yeah, he's already constructing the paranoid yeah. uh, response. That's, that's great. But he's I not also worried. love that he's, that he's crowdsourcing. His, yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 it's yeah. Very, it's, that's what is democracy, if not He should do that with just policy. Yeah, I agree. You know, like a Twitter poll for should we bomb Syria? Yeah. yeah. Sadly, a lot of Dems would say yes. So. Right. But that's yeah, neither that's here nor there. Too. That would be an interesting um, yeah. We're not going to lose. Oh, is he doing pinching hands? Uh, he's doing the point hands. Oh, yeah. First we do make America great again. Then we do keep America great. Let me hear it. Ready? Make America great again. 
course, people are have their Make America Great Again signs, so it seems especially right, 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 right. Uh, it's misleadingly uh, Not popular. Bad. Not bad. If I would have said that three years ago, it wouldn't be a contest, right? You ready? Keep America great. I can't even hear the diff. What do you think? I think the second one is winning out. It is, right? Yeah. 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 Anyway, so... I, I heard someone in line saying, fucking Kaga, dude. Because they, 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 they have Keep America right. Great again for some reason. Oh, in one of the, yeah. right. I was going to make a joke. I was going to be yeah. like, oh, he could just combine them and make it Keep America yeah. Great again. But yeah. that doesn't work. But I guess it does. Yeah, somebody actually... Yeah. The funny thing is he stole Make America Great Again from Reagan. That, that's a Reagan button. Nobody ever cared. It was one of the it was one of the first things he did was with, was come out with that slogan and it was uh, it was plagiarized. So right. hilarious. But uh, no, he's better than the Democrats for sure. We'll, we'll, yeah. What are so, some yeah. Okay. So let's I'm going to read you some of theirs. Ready? Mm -hmm. A fair shot for everyone. A fair shot for everyone. I'll give you a hint. Part of this uh, motto, part uh, of the logo, sorry, part of the logo is it says under the name Big Sky Values. Oh, it's uh, Steve Bullock. Yes. Okay. Who I can't even, I barely remember his name. So I'm I mean, you, you saw that, that, that the only Democratic candidate who could name all the other Democratic candidates was Yang. No, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Everybody else, amazing. most of them missed Messam, but, um, but Yang got them all. Let's see. Brave wins. Br brave wins? Yeah. Or, or wins? Like wins, living. like to, to have victory, to opposite of lose. That would be good. Brave, brave wins. Like that. <laughs> brave wins. That's, That's like, like something Biden would butthead. come. Yeah. 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 <laughs> or Biden, Biden, Biden yeah. Beavis, or Butthead. Biden and Butthead would be a great yeah. cartoon. Brave wins. I mean, the joke would be Elizabeth Warren. Mm -mm. No? Right. That would be, no. Who is it? Gillibrand. Oh, God. All right. I just don't really know what Gillibrand's campaign is Me about. Me neither. Well, now we do know. What is it? Bravery about? and winning. Oh, bravery and winning. Yeah. Okay. Right, who's next? Building opportunity together, which interestingly enough spelled out bot. Building opportunity <laughs> together. Is that Harris? Nope. Opportunity is kind of a loaded quasi right wingy word. Well, that's right? yeah, and so yeah. Hickenlooper? Nope. Jesus, I suck at this. Don't. Uh, there's no. No, that, that's the whole point. All of these are meaningless. And if you if you didn't suck at this, that would make the Democrats effective candidates. Who, yeah. Um, it's not you. It's them. It's not me. It's them. I'm gonna try one more. Okay. Um, is it Biden? Bennett. It was Bennett. a little on. It was too on the nose. Yeah. Okay. Um, our best days still lie ahead. Best days. So that's too long of a slogan. I know. You should, should be out of the race just for that. I can't. You're going to be very. Put, you may be very happy or unhappy. You said that. It's, this will be interesting when I when I do the great reveal. Our of best who it days is. are still ahead. Yeah. Our best day. Our best days still lie ahead. That is our really best long. Days still I can't lie believe ahead? this is the slogan and no one's talking about this. That's another Beavis. It's like that whole often which you are whacking like joke. It's yeah, Beavis, or Biden or Biden. Is it Biden? Yeah. Who would pick a, a, a wordy slogan like that I for know. a guy who can't get through a sentence? Our best days still, I know, has, he probably Lying hasn't ever said it. Lying ahead is our is best, 20, best. 20, 30. If you agree with me, go to Joe 30330 and help me in this fight. Thank you very much. Um, one nation, one destiny. One nation, one destiny. That's very like Leifi Riefenstahl, right? I was just gonna say it's kind of Hitlerian, yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a strong slogan. Yeah. I mean, it's scary. Yeah. Right? But I kind of dig it, and like I don't know. When uh, it, the person who says it makes it a their the person's identity does make it a little bit subversive. I'll give you that hint. One nation. A little less Hitlerian. 
uh, Warren. I keep guessing Warren. I'm hoping I'm getting it right. No. Despite her strong Native American indigenous identity, uh, it is Julian Castro. Wow. Who, by the way, I tweeted a whole thread about him because he did a great job during that early debate where he just killed Beto. Yeah, Beto, that was that amazing. Was, that was horrible. You ever see those nature shows where like a capybara falls in the river and all the yeah. piranhas come yeah. and like fucking, yeah, that, that was what that was like. Yeah. Beto just, yeah. It was terrible. He even turned 180 degrees away from him at one point. Really? Like, you couldn't look at him. Yeah, you see him, and there's a side to side. Yeah. It was really... I felt bad. It actually made me, like, empathize with Beto for the first time in my life. Okay. We will rebuild the middle class. We persist. Win with... Oh, I can't say the other one. Apparently, there are three options, which, of course, makes so much sense. It's a three-tiered slogan? Yeah. Okay. Three bullet points. We will rebuild the middle class. We persist. Win with... And then the person's name. Persist. Persist. That's such a dire word. Yet she... Okay, it's Warren. Yeah. All right. That's I love, really of course, she, like, says she has all these plans, so she has to have three plans, three but options. It's, it sounds like, you know, we're going to survive the siege of Leningrad together. Yeah, you exactly. know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like, we'll hold the line, hold the fort until that's we, right. you know, yeah, yeah we'll, it is pretty. We'll eat, we'll eat the dead. Yeah, exactly. Uh, if we have to. The Donner family. Right, yeah, exactly. Okay, let's see. We were, uh, Working people first. Bernie. No, you know Bernie's. Oh, uh not me, us. Oh, not me, That's us. That's it. Is it Tulsi? Mm-mm. That's Warren? Mm-mm. Jesus. Okay, who? De Blasio. De, oh, de Blasio. I'm just impressed he didn't do, like, some Che Guevara quote. Remember he quoted Che Guevara at the debate in Miami? <laughs> did, did he really? It was, like, hasta la victoria siempre or something, like, you know, until victory always or something. I don't remember what the English thing is, but, yeah. De, de Blasio's all... Just for comic relief, I kind of wanted to stay too. in the race. He's the only candidate who's killed uh, a groundhog. In the race. He's really killed the groundhog? You didn't hear about that? No. In, in, I think I, I, it's a repressed memory. He went to Staten memory. Island on, on, on Groundhog Day in 2014, and he fucking dropped the groundhog. That's so <laughs> awful. That's like you couldn't win dog catcher? What's the expression? Like, you couldn't get elected yeah, couldn't dog get catcher? Elected dog you can't catcher. be, like, groundhog babysitter. Yeah, I mean, if you can't, groundhog if you're a politician sitter. and you can't get through Groundhog Day without killing the groundhog, Oh, my God, that like, is so terrible. That's, like, not a good omen. Has Trump made fun of this yet? I feel like he would make such a why thing would, out of this. Why would well, he, why would he yeah, waste why it? Why would he yeah. even give him any right. Q rating? Right? That's so, so sad. Do you know that de Blasio's wife, um, so she was a lifelong lesbian when they met. Uh-huh. And then she met Bill, and that changes everything, apparently. But also, she was part of the Combahee River Collective, which was this radical black lesbian group that invented the term identity politics. Who did? The Combahee River Collective. Okay. It was a group of radical black women, lesbians. Okay. And they invented the term identity politics, but to mean the opposite of, of what it means now. Like, it means, you know, it was like black lesbians showing up to a construction worker's protest or strike. It's okay. like the opposite. It's more uniting than dividing. Really? Or, yeah, it's more intersectional. And yeah, anyway, I think it's hilarious that that's our first lady. Yeah. The New York City's first lady. That's so bizarre. Yeah. Audrey Lord was part of it. Um, join the evolution. I thought there was a, a typo here. Join the evolution? Yeah. Like they left the R off? I thought they did, but they didn't. How do you... How do you how join do you, an evolution? How do you drop out of evolution? Well, this person would probably have a lot to say about that. <laughs> Join, join the, evolution. the evolution. I know. Like, do you rejoin it? That's a good point. Yeah. Right. I didn't know that we could opt out. Yeah. Yeah. Is, is evolution optional? Yeah, I know. Um, it's like insurance. Is that stayer? Mm-mm. All right. Um, I don't know. Yang? 
Marianne. Mar- that's Marianne? How did, how did she not have love in her? I thing? know. Yeah, okay. that's really bad. I should know all these. This is terrible. Anyway, there's some more, but we, won't, we don't have to go through all of them because we'd be here literally all yeah, day. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, okay, one last one, though. Okay. And this should be a, a moment of silence. Come together. That's Hickenlooper. Yes. So Hickenlooper is the, he's the second body at Camp Crystal Lake. You know how in the Friday the 13th movies, like there's, there's a dead body like every 11 minutes okay, in the movies. Okay, got it. Yeah, so that's, that's what the campaign trail is. is dead, a string of dead bodies. It's a string of dead bodies, and you're the, basically the nomination is the person who's alive at right. the end. Yeah. Who persists. You Who just persists. predicted, according yeah. to the slogans, you predicted a Warren win. Warren, yeah, yeah, because she, she's going to hide in the, in the canoe shed. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, oh, so, wow. Really? Yeah, but you could you could see you could see early on that was Nick that a woke was... thing, the canoe shed. Oh God! <laughs> you really wandered off the reservation there, Matt. Warren is going to survive in the canoe shed. All right, yeah, just just so people know, if you're going to have a problematic thought or joke or something, we're going to we hit the woke button, right. and you just won't right. hear you won't hear our problematic. Right. So you thought. wouldn't hear the anti-Asian or anti-Semitic right, thought yeah, that we didn't exactly. have, obviously. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Anyway, all right. So that's that's the Democrats, right? Yeah, that's the Democrats. Yeah. Those are some pretty weak slogans. Like I, I know. I know. Should we predict who's going to be the yeah, person who's sh- going to be out next? Yeah, we should actually. Yeah, we should. Yeah, who do you think it'll be? I'm going to go Ryan. Yeah. Yeah, Tim Ryan. De Blasio is going to stay in just because this is clearly fun for him on some level. Right. So He's like, he reminds me of a guy who just like got to college and is reading a lot of radical stuff and just spouting it out from like oh, the right. sidelines, you yeah, know? Yeah, you're like doing bong hits and talking yeah, about yeah. it. Yeah, and yeah, has yeah, a poster yeah. that's like at first they, they went for the Jews and I didn't say anything because I wasn't a Jew. Oh, right, yeah. You know, the, they came the pastor, for yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And like has a like a tie dye tapestry hanging in his room too. <laughs> um, okay, so you say Tim Ryan, I say Sestak. Sestak still in? I've never. I, I, if you showed me like a thousand I pictures, yeah. I would not be yeah. able to identify what Sestak looks like. So maybe so. him. And then Amy Klobuchar is like she's going to stay in. She's going to stay in. I don't because she's yeah. going to be somebody's VP pick if it's the really. Yeah. Oh my god! So let's just predict it now. Who are you predicting for the the nomination and the VP? I mean, it's going to come down to three people. It's going to come down to Bernie, Warren, and, and Biden. But, the, you know, who among those is difficult to say. So right. uh, all of those candidates are, they have, it's going to be impossible to extract any one of them early. So right. the, the argument for Bernie is, is the same argument for, for uh, Trump last time, ironically, which is that if too many candidates stay in, the one who has the more most insoluble base of support right. is going to prevail with a plurality, but he's got to take some of Biden's votes away, I think. Right. So. Well, you know, uh, he may be able to take some of Biden's votes away because it looks like Jill Biden may just have endorsed uh, Bernie Sanders' health care plan. Listen to this. So, yes, you know, I, you know, your candidate might be better on, I don't know, health care than Joe is. But you've got to look at who's going to win some And maybe you have to swallow a little bit and say, okay, oh. I personally like so-and-so better. This is kind but of amazing. Your bottom line has to be that you have to Because I know that not all of you are committed to my husband. Um, and I respect that. But I want you to think about that. So you don't like my husband. Your candidate, his or her electability, and who's going to win this race. And so if you're looking at that, you've got to look at the polls. And, you know, a lot of times I say, oh, you know, polls, excuse me, polls don't mean anything. Polls don't mean anything. But 
if they're consistent and they're consistently saying the same thing, I think you can't dismiss that. I mean, you all deal with facts. So um, I think if your goal, I know my goal is to be Donald Trump, we have to have someone who can be I think the new the new slogan for Joe Biden should just be look at the polls. Right, look, look at the polls. Yeah. But so she says at the beginning, she says, so yes, you know your candidate might be better on health care than Joe is, but you've got to look at who's going to win this election. Yeah, She's not basically... Exactly, not exactly a ringing I endorsement. Know. I mean, that's, that's such a modern democratic thing. Like, look, you may think that our candidate sucks and is especially bad on health care right. or whatever it is but you know suck it up and, right. and vote for us yeah exactly you know like the onion four years ago did a thing with hillary where it's, i think it was like hillary colon hillary to america colon don't fuck this up for me that's right? perfect yeah and it's there's a little bit of that attitude with right. that right but with, there's more humility that's true you yes, know it's, yes. it's almost admirable we, we know yeah. we know that right that this is a flawed campaign that you're going to have a hard time getting right. excited about on any level. Right. But vote for us anyway yes. because, like... It's, they're right. They're making the plea. They're not assuming coronation. They're arguing for coronation, but they're right. not assuming it. That's, yeah, and that's the difference. Uh, that's amazing. Yeah. So we have something exciting coming up. Yeah, we have something really exciting coming up for you, dear listeners and viewers, which is that we interviewed Tulsi Gabbard, the congresswoman from Hawaii, who is a presidential candidate. That's right. She was uh, kind enough to be our inaugural guest, yeah. and uh, we can cut to the interview now. Yeah. We're very excited to have our inaugural guest, Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you both. I'm Thank honored you. to be here as your inaugural guest. <laughs> yeah. This is very cool. Very cool. Thank you so much for coming. We're going to be talking a lot about the campaign this year, and obviously you've been in the news a lot in the last, last couple of weeks. And um, but I want to sort of talk about your decision-making in terms of how you came to run for president, but starting way back. You, mm-hmm. you were in the Hawaii State Legislature in 2002 at the age of... 21? 21. Right. Were you the youngest person ever? In the- <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. Youngest person ever elected in our state. And I think one of the youngest women ever elected in the country. Wow. All right. What, what prompted you to get into politics at first? Uh, for me, it was my passion for the environment. Uh, you know, at, at a deeper level, even as a young person, as, as you know, teenager, as a kid, I experienced um, that I was happiest when I was doing things for other people. And so knew in some form or another that I wanted to pursue a path of service in my life. Didn't know exactly how or in what form that would take, but uh, ultimately made that decision at 21 to run for the state house, really seeing the opportunity to have a much bigger impact on things that I really cared about in Hawaii, like protecting our clean water sources, our water aquifers, our oceans, uh, and our environment. Uh, something I had been involved with even as a teenager, forming a nonprofit, you know, joining with my friends to go clean up beaches, but seeing, gosh, what better way to make an impact than to be a policymaker mm-hmm. to make sure that, um, you know, as a government, we are making that a priority. So what was an early piece of legislation that you wanted to work on? Was there was there a law? Well, there, there was the, actually the thing that, that got me interested in politics as a way to influence this was when uh, there was a landfill that was projected to be built directly over one of our largest water aquifers in the state. Okay. Most populated island in the state is the island of Oahu, where I live and where I grew up. And what I saw through this process as we were going around gathering signatures, uh, getting people aware of the danger of building a landfill over a water aquifer was how close the uh, landfill developer was with the politicians who 
we're greasing the wheels to get this project approved without really being the consumer protectors that they're supposed to be. Right. And so that for me was saying, hey, like I can go out and gather signatures all day, but I want to be in that room where they're making the decisions. And so that was that was what drove me to to make that decision. So it's an early window into how yeah, things work exactly. generally, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> exactly. What well, we're still facing here at the national level and right. as we're dealing still with environmental protection and climate change and how those wheels continue to be greased for, you know, big oil, fossil fuel companies and these other special interests who've got all the money and are buying that influence to shape our policies in this country that serve their interests rather than a government that's for of by and for the people serving the interests of the people. That seems like a gateway issue for a lot of people. The environment, right? Because it's something you experience really directly and especially and it's universal, sure. especially right. in a place like Hawaii. I was gonna yeah. say, yeah, it must be hard. Beautiful to, yeah. and, and for us really is it's it's um, it's a way of life. Right. You know, growing up in Hawaii, the culture that we're surrounded by is one where we are taught to be custodians of our home, of Mother Earth, uh, and to respect and to take care of uh, our planet, to take care of our home. And I think that's, that's something really cool that we're seeing today. More and more young people around the world are feeling and, and taking that responsibility very seriously as the threats continue to grow. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's Hawaii's greatest natural resource, economic driver, everything, right? So, every yeah, every yeah. aspect of our life, uh, especially as the most remote island chain on the planet, yeah. uh, it is about life, right. really. So it's so that's 2002, 2003. Yeah. It's the height of you know 9/11 has just happened. Yeah. There's a, the buildup to the Iraq War, um, and you make a decision that turns out to be like a crossroads event in your in your life, which is to just to volunteer. Um, what was your what was your thinking back then? What what were you thinking about the war? What were you yeah. thinking about what we were doing there? And why did you decide to volunteer? Uh, well, 9-11 impacted me like it did so many people across this country. It was a real turning point in my life because prior to that, you know, military service wasn't really something that had crossed my mind. Uh, both of my grandfathers had served in the military, mm-hmm. and so there was a strong ethic of service in our family, but uh, it just wasn't something that I thought about. 9-11 happened, and I knew in a very deep way somehow I wanted to be in a position to serve my country and to go after those who had attacked us on that day, go after the Al-Qaeda terrorists. Mm-hmm. Wasn't sure exactly how I was going to do that. I wanted to be able to continue my service to the people of my state, uh, the people of Hawaii, and eventually join the National Guard as a way that would allow me to do both, fulfill both of those missions of serving home and serving our country. Uh, and in 2004, as I was campaigning for re-election to my state house seat, our um, Brigade combat team, the unit in the National Guard that uh, has close to 3,000 people was activated for an 18-month-long deployment to Iraq. And I was assigned to a headquarters medical unit at the time. Uh, My commander called me very shortly after that notice was put out and said, hey, guess what, Tulsi, you don't have to go. Congratulations, you get to stay home. And I, you know, I said, wait, what, what are you talking about? How is this possible? I just knew that there was no way that I could stay back home in beautiful Hawaii and just wave goodbye to my brothers and sisters in the in the National Guard as as they went off to war and so um, but the, you got a deferral or something like no, that no there was the, the the job that I was trained for mm-hmm. there was someone who had already filled that slot oh, okay all right and so uh, my commander quickly learned that I would not take no for an answer 
and pushed him. And there was another job in the field medical unit that was deploying um, that needed someone to fill it. And so I was able to fill that slot, went and got trained in a different job, uh, and ended up deploying. Okay. And you ended up uh, in, in uh, Anaconda, right? Kind of, uh, in, uh, yes, in, yes. In our, our brigade was based out of, as you know, a camp called uh, LSA Anaconda, right. which is a logistical supply area. Anaconda is about 40 miles north of Baghdad. And we got there late 2004, early 2005, which was really the height of the war uh, at that time, uh, where there were a lot of casualties. Um, and that was serving in that medical unit, something that had a deep impact on me on a daily basis where there's no running away from the, the devastatingly high human cost of war. Right. So you had really two, two experiences that were very striking, the exposure to the high number of American casualties, yeah. but also there was the mission itself, which didn't seem to really fit with the Aloha culture and what, what you had grown up with. You, well, I think what we found, I mean, like so many people, we were there uh, to serve our country and, and believing the lie that we were all told that, hey, we've got to go to Iraq and topple Saddam Hussein, this brutal dictator, because he's working with Al-Qaeda and they've got weapons of mass destruction and they're going to use them to attack us. I mean, that's the mission and the mindset that we went there. Uh, believing, mm-hmm. like again, like so many politicians in Washington, so many people in the country, right. uh, only to really realize that we were we were lied to, uh, and that we were betrayed. This really wasn't about going after Al Qaeda. This wasn't about fulfilling that mission of protecting the American people at all. It was a regime change war that was launched under the guise of of national security under the guise of humanitarianism and look at all these atrocities that this brutal dictator has done to his own people uh, and done really for the benefit of of corporate interests uh, and oil. And that was something even while we were there uh, was very eye-opening to me coming from state government. You know, I'd left my re-election campaign and my my seat in the state house and going there and, and thinking about fiscal responsibility to taxpayers and seeing plastered all over our mm. camp this big emblem of KBR Halliburton. Oh God, right? yeah. Mm-hmm. You saw it, I'm mm-hmm. sure. Yeah, every outhouse was, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Everywhere, yeah. everywhere. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we're from Hawaii. We have, like, very diverse, you know, we have people from across the Pacific, Filipino, Chinese, Vietnamese, all kinds of people in our unit. And we started making friends with the, mm-hmm. the what were called the third country nationals that mm-hmm. were hired by KBR Halliburton to come and do things like clean the outhouses or cook the meals in the chow hall. And uh, so we'd start to make friends with them and talk with them and, you know, go outside behind the tent, start cooking rice and sharing food and uh, just start asking, hey, how much are you guys making? You know, how are you being treated? Oh, it was outrageous, it right? It was outrageous yeah, yeah. to see. I mean, hearing, oh, I get paid $500 a month. Wow. A month to work 12-hour days, six, seven days a week. How often do you get home to see your family? maybe once a year, but probably every other year. Mm -hmm. And just knowing the billions, the billions of dollars these companies are making and really to have this indentured servitude, it just, it went to, well, this is the military industrial complex that they're really the ones who are profiting off of this war to the harm and destruction and loss of life of my brothers and sisters in uniform and the people of Iraq, the people where we're waging this war. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the conditions were horrible. They had, you know, Filipino or Sri Lankan women exactly. in trailers, you know, um, you know, 10 or 12 to a tiny space. It exactly. was terrible, yeah. It was terrible. Was that one of the aha moments where you started to reconsider why you were there? It was. I mean, it was a process, a, a, an eye-opening experience throughout our time there on many levels, both the why we were there and who was benefiting, who was benefiting from our being there um, and at such tremendous Right. This is sort of a larger philosophical question about that, but you, you touched on it. I mean, at, before the Iraq war happened, there were all these protests, and sort of liberal America was speculating, well, this is, there was the no blood for all oil right. theory, right? We're there for the oil. Then Rumsfeld's excuse for why we were going was, well, we're going to drain the swamp, we're going, to, we're going to establish a democracy, and then that will, there's a long-term geopolitical uh, objective that we'll have a Western-style democracy in the region and they'll be our partners. Why were we there really? I mean, it's, it's still kind of a mystery, isn't it? I mean, were they, did they really believe that they were going to stop terrorism? Were we there for, for the oil companies? What, what was, Bush, I mean, is Bush uh, Jr. for Bush Sr. Right. Like the <laughs> yeah, the revenge theory. issue. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, there, there are so many different um, narratives and, and reasons and, and things that, that we have all discovered and maybe are continuing to discover about how and why that decision was ultimately made. But I think it all boils down to the fact that that decision and other decisions like it as it relates to these regime change wars, being the world's police, toppling dictators with the promise of nation building to follow because it'll make things better. Right. These, these, these wasteful wars, number one, have not served the national security interests of the United States. We look at terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS. They have been born out of these wars and have been strengthened because of these wars and interventions. So it's made us less safe mm -hmm. as a country. It has come at a tremendous cost to both our service members and their families. Families who never got to say that final goodbye. To my brothers and sisters in uniform, to our friends who never got to make that trip home. It's come at a tremendous cost to the American people. With the six plus trillion dollars that's been spent since 9-11 alone, you know, Families in Flint, Michigan right now who are still being told, sorry, there's just not enough money to make sure you've got clean water. Right. And that, that's just in Flint. There are so many people in this country, other communities who are facing similar, uh, really life and health threatening challenges. Why? Well, sorry, there's just not enough money. Yet today as we sit here, we're still spending $4 billion a month in Afghanistan. Is that monthly? $4 billion? $4 billion a month in Afghanistan. U.S. dollars? U.S. dollars. And the, the, the last thing I'll mention is that these wars have been waged to the detriment of the people in right. these countries where supposedly our leaders are saying we're trying to help them, we're trying to save them, we're trying to make things better for them. And we see this alarming trend you know, in, in our recent history in places like Iraq yeah. and Libya and Syria where all of this is true. And we see now with what's happening in Central America and South America, how these interventions that the United States has led uh, for a variety of reasons, whether they're corporate interests or otherwise to pick which leaders they wanted and supported authoritarian dictators and toppled leaders otherwise who they disagreed with. Mm -hmm. And the state of these countries and the suffering that people are, are uh, trying to escape now, largely as a result.
So these, I mean, I think we've got to look at these things within the larger context of this trend of, of uh, a foreign policy establishment that has not been serving the interests of the American people. Right. But, and sides with death squads, you know, especially right. in Central America. That's always such a stark example. If anyone thinks that the U.S. government is doing things for the right, re, you know, moral reasons, yeah. just look at Latin America. And that's, that's really, for me, what's, what's one of the main things that drove my running for Congress was coming back from both of my deployments to the Middle East really uh, changed and committed to being in a position where I can be a decision maker rather than just be on the receiving end of these terrible decisions that Washington has been making and to now run for president to serve as commander in chief, bringing the experience that I have both as a soldier now for over 16 years uh, also serving in Congress for, for almost seven years, focused on national security and foreign policy, on foreign affairs and armed services, homeland security committees, and being able to walk in on day one, ready to serve as commander-in-chief and bring about this sea change in our foreign policy that we need, not to disengage from the world and be an isolationist, but rather to end these wasteful regime change wars exercise diplomacy, build relationships with other countries that's based on cooperation rather than conflict so that we can de-escalate so many of the tensions that have brought us to the point now where you know, we're, we're essentially in a new Cold War and an, and an arms race now that this president is only further exacerbating by doing things like tearing up the INF Treaty right. and others. So yeah, you've been obviously portrayed lately as an isolationist of having a negative view of American foreign policy. But what was what was the real impetus for for running for president? There was an incident with a nuclear warning, and yeah, it was it was a year ago in Hawaii, mm -hmm. uh, early on a Saturday morning. Uh, over a million people all across our state woke up to uh, a warning that went out across cell phones, blaring on sirens saying there's a missile incoming, seek immediate shelter, this is not a drill. Seek immediate shelter, this is not a drill. It was, it was absolutely terrifying, terrifying, and, and because we quickly came to realize there was no shelter. You know, right. there's nowhere for our loved ones to go. And this is where, you know, we had kids on our, our University of Hawaii College campus sprinting in all directions, seek immediate shelter. Where? Where do you, yeah. go? <laughs> yeah. where do you go? I mean, th there's a video that's gone viral now of a father lowering his little girl down a manhole. Wow. Thinking at least maybe she'll be protected there. And that is the big... Uh, hoax and the big lie in this whole thing and how our leaders have failed us. They've brought us to this point where this threat is real. This threat is real and it's been created by leaders who have failed us through their broken and destructive foreign policy. And then they tell us, oh, here's a sophisticated alert system that'll tell you when an attack is coming and we're going to tell you to seek immediate shelter, but there is right. no shelter. Not in Hawaii, not anywhere in this country. And that for me, in going through that and experiencing that was a major catalyst, was the major catalyst for me to decide to run for president because I know that it doesn't have to be this way. Right. It doesn't have to be this way. This is not something we just have to accept. We cannot afford to accept it. We have to bring about this change in leadership 
that will, you know, as president within the first week, I'll call a summit with Russia and China so that we can begin to de-escalate these tensions, work out the issues that we have, but de-escalate these tensions that have brought us to this point where nuclear strategists are telling us, look, we are closer to the brink of nuclear catastrophe now than we ever have been before. It's yeah, I mean, it's funny because you go all the way back to the early 80s, there, you know, like when the day after came out, yeah. that movie, I mean, Americans and Russians for that point at that, that time had a consciousness that the system doesn't really work and that it's incredibly dangerous and we had nuclear reduction strategies. Reagan talked with, with, uh, with the Soviet Union. Um, then there were uh, you know, scientists that came out and told us we wouldn't be able to survive even a couple of bombs going off because of uh, atmospheric conditions. But somehow in the last two, three decades, that's all been forgotten, right? And we're back to this idea that first strike a is... A nuclear war can be won. Yeah, yeah. And it's so bizarre. It was even by in the debate. Side, yeah. By any right. side. And this is, this is the, the problem. And I don't know if Trump believes, like, I don't know if he believes this or not, but this is the, this is the truth is that a nuclear war cannot be won. A nuclear arms race cannot be won by anyone because once it begins, our planet is annihilated. That's the reality. And we're not just talking about the initial blast, like, oh, we'll just go and drop a bomb on one city. No, that's not how this works. Right. You know, you've got the nuclear winter that follows. And this is something, you know, a lot of us are really concerned about with the, the recent tensions between India and Pakistan, two nuclear powers, and, and the impact not being isolated to two countries who are at war with each other, but the impact on the world. And this is why, uh, you know, I'm the opposite of an isolationist. This is why right. I feel strongly that it's important we engage with leaders in the world uh, to be able to address these challenges, and we cannot address them. We won't be able to engage in the way that we need to, to pursue peace and mutual prosperity around the world so long as we continue to act as the world's police. It just won't happen. Or uh, bully. Or bully, exactly. Yeah. It's funny because, um, well, it's not funny, it's, it's tragic and scary, but you know, Democrats used to, on some level at least, be a little bit less hawkish. Um, and you know, one of the things that liberals liked about Obama was that he said he would talk to North Korea. Exactly. And all of a sudden we see... And Castro. And Castro, and, right, right. Yeah. That was a plus, right? Diplomacy. We believed yeah. in diplomacy as opposed to um, strike first. Un understanding questions. that the only alternative to diplomacy is war. Right, exactly. That's why it's important. And nowadays you see liberals, the only thing they like about Trump or the only thing they want him to do is ratchet things up. They're yeah. constantly calling on him to do that with Putin, with Syria. Um, which, of course, I don't know what they think the end game is. That's the problem, is they're not thinking of the end game. Right. They're not thinking of the consequences or what happens when you use this rhetoric that increases these tensions or, frankly, painting the president, President Trump, into a corner. Right, exactly. Where, you know, he feels like in order to, I don't know, get the approval of people or get them off his back, he's got to come out and lash out and further increase right. these tensions with nuclear-armed countries like Russia and China, for that right. matter. Like not to seem weak exactly. or something. And also, it's so funny because these same people who are saying that about him or trying to push him to do more are the ones calling him Cheeto, Mussolini, you know, existential threat, erratic, mm -hmm. with dementia. And all of this, to me, just points to the deep-seated problem in this country as it relates to foreign policy and, and so many of our domestic policies is leaders who are putting their own party's interests or their own political interests ahead of the interests of the people. 
but they're doing so with the most dangerous of stakes, with the most dangerous possible uh, consequence. I mean, this is really about all of our lives in this country. It's about our future um, on this planet. I mean, this is this is what I really want to get into is when did when did being against war, when did being having a, or having a constructive foreign policy or trying to de-escalate nuclear tension, when did that become so infamous? I mean, suddenly yeah. you're, you're in the race. I've never seen a, a reaction like what's happened really just since the, the, the second debate when you had the confrontation with, with, uh, with yeah. Senator Harris. It was, it, you know, the, the stories have been off the charts so bizarre. What is that about? I mean, it, it, it You mean seems like that she's a, that you're a Putin puppet or an Assadist or well, anything? Well, there's been everything. Yeah. You, know, yeah. you know, David Duke supports yeah. you. you know, people who like Putin donate to your campaign. I mean, it's, it's coming from all sides, and it's clearly... Right. And it's so ridiculous that it's, it's laughable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, it's so ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. But, but it, scary, just, yeah. it just shows, though that uh, launching a smear campaign is the only response that they have right, to the truth, exactly. which means they're afraid of the truth because it's real. Right. And more and more people are seeing uh, past the facade that they have built up uh, for so long. So there were two extraordinary press moments in the campaign for you. One really came when you launched your campaign on February 2nd. There was an NBC story that came out that essentially said that your campaign was being backed and driven by Russian trolls. When did you first hear that that story was in the works? Did you hear about it ahead of time? We were contacted about that story, I don't know, a few days or maybe a week before uh, my, my official launch for my campaign for president. And we were told it was going to come out, uh, I don't know, in the week after. Uh, I was going to announce my candidacy until uh, all of a sudden we found out when the article was posted. I think it was two hours before I gave my speech. It was a Saturday, wasn't it? It was a Saturday. Yeah. <laughs> and they had to bring people Saturday in to afternoon. do the story. Yeah, yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. And then, and then during the, after the debate, uh, the last debate, you have this confrontation with Senator Harris, and you know, it doesn't go so well for her. And within an hour after the debate, you have her campaign manager is saying, you love Assad. There's the, you know, the, the, the Russia bots thing yeah. is suddenly in the news again. Um, is this a new thing in your experience? What, what is, where is this coming from? Is it the party that's doing this? I think, I think it, again, it's revealing about uh, how pathetic um, it is that that's all they can right. respond to when uh, really the issue that I was raising in that debate with Senator Harris was the record that she claims to be very proud of as attorney general, mm-hmm. a record that she claims is about being a champion for the people. This is what she's built her presidential campaign around. Which is, I mean, it's a lie. When you look at that record and you look at how many people's lives have been ruined, how many people have suffered, how many families have been torn apart as a result of her as attorney general when in a position of power to help people, to change this incredibly broken criminal justice system. Instead, she perpetuated all that is wrong with it in so many different ways. And this is the truth about her record uh, that she can't run away from. Uh, instead of responding to that and saying why she's so proud of this, uh, she responds with, with a smear campaign. So to me, this, this is a bigger issue that speaks to uh, what kind of leader she would be as president and frankly how dangerous uh, I believe that leadership would be for the people in this country. 
And the fact that people don't see through that, I mean, some do, but the fact that you can actually hear someone say that, it's such an obvious deflection. It's so obviously yeah. not responding to any of the content of what you said. And the fact that they aren't embarrassed. Yeah. I mean, it's such scary. Well, and I think that, the, the, I, I agree. I think it is scary when you look at um, what a Harris presidency would be if this is what she's doing right now on the campaign trail in launching these, these smear attacks uh, claiming that somehow I'm some kind of foreign agent for another country. Uh, I wear the uniform. I wear the cloth of this right. country. I've taken an oath to put my life on the line for this country that I love and for the people that I love. And I still serve in that Army National Guard today. Mm -hmm. I'm a sitting member of Congress. I'm running for president. And if she uh, responds to the truth about her record by questioning the loyalty to this country that I've put my life on the line for, how will she as president respond to people who are critical of her or her record or who protest certain policies that she is proposing? I mean, this is the United States of America. This, this begs the question about freedom of speech and what kind of society uh, and what kind of freedoms uh, she would stand up for and protect. Yeah, I mean, is, isn't, this, isn't there sort of a larger issue with you know, red, red baiting, yeah. accusing people of, of treason, disloyalty. And it's not new though, right? I mean, yeah. when you look at these right. tactics and how they've been used before, uh, the, during the Iraq war, you mm. know, there were a few yeah, brave sodomists, souls. Right? Exactly. Sodomists, or, yeah. right. Uh, the, those brave few who stood right. up against that vote, who stood up against the war, were accused of that. You love brutal dictators. Right. You love Saddam Hussein. You're not a real patriot. You must not love America unless you support this war. And look at how those same attacks are being lobbed against me today for being a uh, leading voice against the regime change war that we're continuing to wage now today in Syria. And so again, this points to leadership. If you look at you know, a lot of politicians now, it's easy and popular to say, oh, of course the Iraq war was wrong. Right. Of course, now that we're, what, almost 20 years later from launching that war. Right. But what about today? Right. Where's your courage today to stand up against the regime change efforts in Syria and in other countries, frankly, that are happening right now? We don't need a president who's going to be a follower or Johnny right. come lately. We need a president who has the courage to do the right thing now, recognizing the cost and the consequences of doing, continuing to do the wrong thing. Right. And learning the lessons from history, right? Exactly. I mean, what, what's the takeaway from Iraq? Exactly. Well, and that's, that's, I think, the big difference. And this is, why, um, this is why I am ready to do that job of president and commander in chief on day one, bringing the experience that I have, coupled with the conviction of, not, of, of knowing the direction that we need to take to bring about this change in our foreign policy and not bending to the wishes of the foreign policy establishment, the military industrial complex, even the four-star generals who are bringing their best military advice. We have a civilian-led military uh, for a reason, civilian-led country for a reason. Uh, and I think that's something that really differentiates me from uh, many of the other candidates, if not all the other candidates who are running for president right now. Things have gotten so strange since the Iraq period. You know, just the idea of going into going to war in Iraq raised an entire huge national conversation. Now, 
most people don't even know what countries were deployed in, right. do we? I mean, we, you know, we have to wait for a report by the, the military every year to find out, is it seven, eight? You know, um, we don't even have a conversation about it anymore. And, uh, you know, I just think that's fascinating. Uh, and, and now it's like the, like the liberal position right. seems like is, is, to, is to not even question deployment or, or foreign engagement. And it's, uh, it's, been, it's been striking. It is troubling. And there's an inability also to distinguish between, like you said, isolationism on the one hand mm -hmm. and a kind of anti-war engagement. Exactly. You know, and, and we saw that during the debate. I couldn't believe it when I think Jake Tapper asked Bernie Sanders if that, if wasn't he like Trump because mm -hmm. he was also opposing some interventions. And it's like, really? Do you yeah. not understand the difference between those two things? Yeah. Well, I, and I think that points to kind of the troubling state that we are in now where, uh, people like myself are accused of right. being an isolationist exactly. simply because I'm calling for an end to wasteful regime change wars and that we should stop being the world's police. Right. If, if this is the new norm where people believe the only way the United States can engage with the world is, uh, you know, by bombing them or implementing right. crippling economic sanctions, this is exactly what's wrong. When we as the United States have the opportunity to be a leader in the world, strengthening those relationships, leading us towards a future of peace and freedom and prosperity uh, in a very positive way, actually being a force for good. So one of the things that the press likes to talk about, the same media that calls you an Assad apologist likes to talk about, is this meeting that you had with Assad from the perspective of someone who really believes in diplomacy yeah. and thinks you shouldn't be lauded for that, not smeared for it. But can you explain what happens, why we should be meeting with these people and what the meeting was like? Look, as a soldier, I know the cost of war in a deeply, deeply personal way. And I'm willing to do whatever it takes, whether it means meeting with one dictator or a hundred dictators to save the life of even one of my brothers and sisters in uniform, save them from uh, giving their life unnecessarily in a wasteful counterproductive war, then I'm willing to do that. Yeah, I wish other people were willing to do that. Exactly, yeah. and, and again, this speaks to leadership and courage, and having the courage to do the tough thing, putting the interests of our country, our men and women in uniform, our people, ahead of anything else. It means doing the tough thing, right. even if it means it's going to be bad for you politically. Right, yeah. So you're off to New Hampshire from here. Yes. The, you're, you're in the middle of this crazy uh, Democratic primary race. The party seems really in schism. There's all kinds of things. Going. Was there a discussion in the caucus heading into this election year about what the strategy would be? I mean, were there the discussions about whether or not we should put, push a progressive uh, posture or go with moderates. I mean, it seems like that there, there's an indecision within the party, or is that not accurate? I'm, I'm smiling because, in my experience, the Democratic Party has always been diverse. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that seems like a <laughs> loaded it word. <laughs> it's always been diverse. So no, no, I mean, there's no, at least I'm not aware of, and I haven't been in any rooms where it's been like, hey, we're going to take this approach and only uh, support those who view this. I mean, if you look at the diversity in views and experience and, and approach uh, to solutions within the 20-odd people who are running for president, right. um, you know, I think this is, this, is, this is not a bad thing, to be honest. It's not a bad thing for us as a country and as Democrats to have this debate, to be able to compare and contrast records and the kind of leadership and approach that we would bring 
to this, uh, this most important job of president and at such a critical time. I think one of the mistakes is, and, and this is coming from many in the media, but also many within our own party, again, who are choosing politics of divisiveness rather than politics of the people, politics for the people. So you end up having an intra-party uh, battle and war of you know, the, the progressives versus the moderates or the centrists or whatever the label of the day actually is, rather than just saying, hey, what about finding the best solution to the problem? What about actually thinking about the challenges people are facing and how we can best solve them? Right. Uh, and this is this is a problem that um, you know that I saw very quickly after getting elected to Congress, where immediately, and this this was on a partisan basis, but immediately uh, after we got there, it was like, all right, we're separating you guys as newly elected members of Congress. Republicans go here, Democrats go there. Democrats, you don't want to support Republican bills. Republicans don't want to support Democrat bills. And decisions being made on such a superficial level for partisan reasons, rather than saying, all right, let's just talk about your idea. Whether you're a Democrat or Republican, let's talk about your idea and figure out, is this something that we can agree on? Does this make sense? Is this something that'll actually work? Uh, and this, this is what I've done throughout my time in Congress uh, in building those partnerships, staying focused on the issue itself and the solution, rather than getting attached to all these different labels. I've talked to staffer, like older staffers in Congress in the yeah. past. I know you got to go, um, but I'm just, I'm just curious. They've talked about how there was a culture in the '60s, '70s where, you know, on the weekends, the Republicans and Democrats they would they would drink together, they would hang out together at each other's families, they would work things out quietly. But that dialogue doesn't really exist anymore, does it? I mean, or or is yeah? Is, no, I mean, after after the last votes of the week are done, like it's sprinting to the car and to the airport right. and I get it because you know we need to get back home to right. our constituents and to be able to spend time with folks in our district um, so it's I, I maybe it was easier back then but it really just gets to I think that bigger problem where there's there's not a will or a desire to engage with people who you may disagree with maybe on a few things or maybe a lot of things and again it goes back to this hyper partisanship and putting party before people, putting politics before the well-being of the people. And uh, I think this is a great note to close this conversation on because where I come from, what we call, um, where we find the solution is called aloha. And that's what I do my best to bring everywhere I go, especially to Washington, but across the country, because what aloha really means is I come to you with respect. I come to you uh, with love and compassion and care and a recognition that no matter your political beliefs, you know, uh, what party you belong to, your race, ethnicity, religion, orientation, all of these things that are too often used to divide us, aloha is that recognition that we are all connected. We are all children of God. We are all people. And if we begin our conversation there uh, on that basis of respect, then we have the opportunity to come together as people as Americans in this country who really do love our country and love each other and care for each other and our future, that's how we move forward together. That's how we solve problems. That's how we get past so much of this terrible divisiveness um, that, is, that is really hurting us as people and it's hurting our country. And, and that's the kind of leadership that I seek to bring. Terrific. Right. Congresswoman, thank you so much for yeah, coming. Thank you and so much. Good luck thank to you, you on the trail. It's great yeah. talking to you. 
So that was Tulsi Gabbard. It was a great interview. Yeah. And uh, we'll be bringing you more interviews, more episodes. You can find us on iTunes where you can rate and review us and subscribe to the podcast. You made it all the way through without laughing. I know. That was good. I'm Michael Toscano, hoping you'll join me on the First Light Podcast. We get to the heart of the event shaping our world as our correspondents check in and we talk with newsmakers and people who can take us behind the headlines. The First Light Podcast, wherever you get podcasts.